From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, there were huge street protests in Haiti last Sunday. Amy Willens will report. But first, Chesa Boudin talks about prisons and families. Chesa Boudin is the district attorney of San Francisco, elected in 2019. He's one of the leading progressive prosecutors in the country, along with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and George Gascon in L.A. Chesa also has the lead piece in the nation's new special issue on parents and parenting. Chesa Boudin, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. Well, tell us about your parents. John, I grew up visiting my biological parents in prison. I'll tell you why. When I was a year old, they left me at a babysitter, and they went off to participate in an armed robbery of a Brinks truck. It was 1981 in Nyack, New York. And even though my parents themselves were unarmed, two police officers and a security guard were killed during the commission of the offense. Needless to say, my parents never picked me up from the babysitter that day. Instead, my mother ended up serving 22 years in New York State Prison. My father is still incarcerated today at the age of 76 after nearly 40 years behind bars. And we're talking about David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin, known as anti-war activists, founders of SDS, and leaders of Weatherman and then of the Weather Underground. That's right. And my earliest memories of them, um, of course, I know the history you're describing, but that was all before my lifetime. I was only a year old when they were arrested, and my earliest memories of them are after going through steel gates and metal detectors just to be able to give them a hug. Well, you open your piece for the nation's special issue on parenting with a story about one weekend when you were 12 and went to visit your father, David Gilbert. It was a trailer visit. Please explain. Trailer visits are what we call the family reunion program in uh, New York State maximum security prisons. They're basically overnight visits, and they're reserved for inmates serving long sentences with exceptionally clean discipline records, like my father, who's never been uh, subject to a sustained discipline violation in his 40 years in prison. Uh, And they allow immediate family members, spouses, children, parents, to go into the prison and stay in the prison for uh, essentially a full weekend. We bring our own food and our own clothes. Of course, it's all searched. And we uh, spend the time in a very small trailer home uh, or modular home, depending on the prison. It gives us an opportunity for the kind of human interactions that make relationships possible um, that simply can't be done in a few hour long prison visiting room, sitting at a long table. It's the reason why I have a relationship with my dad. I've been able to do these visits uh, since I was about five years old. And it's a tremendous privilege in the context of incarceration. I know most children with incarcerated parents do not have that visiting opportunity. How many people in prison are parents and how many children have incarcerated parents? Well, the United States leads the world in locking people up. We have um, about 25% of the world's prisoners. And in raw numbers, it's about 2.3 million people behind bars on any given day. The majority of them are parents. 
and they have an average of over two children per person. So we actually have more children with an incarcerated parent than we have people behind bars. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the long-term consequences, a, a really simple way to frame it is the majority of adult Americans have an immediate family member who is currently or formerly incarcerated. This is something that touches all of our lives. And getting back to your experience, how often did you have these trailer visits? I did them most years, twice a year with my father. And mind you, I grew up in Chicago for the most part. So each of these visits required me flying, usually by myself as a child, back to the East Coast, having mm. a friend or a volunteer pick me up at the airport, help me get groceries for the visit, and then drop me off at the prison mm. to be processed in. Um, again, I was really privileged and lucky to have such a wide support network, to have a family that was able to put me on the airplane, to have a social network to find volunteers to pick me up on the other end. And I know most children with incarcerated parents don't benefit from those kinds of visiting opportunities or the resources necessary to make them a reality. And the story you tell in The Nation when you were 12 years old concerns your homework. You brought your homework with you. That's right. I always had to stay on top of my schoolwork and going on weekend visits to visit my parents in prison didn't give me an excuse to not come in on Monday morning with my homework done. It also, I'm sure, was uh, a nice thing for my father to be able to participate in helping me with my homework and making sure it got done on time. But on that particular visit, I really didn't want to do my uh, American history assignment. And I had a bit of a temper tantrum um, after procrastinating and putting the homework off to the very last minute. And uh, then on the last night of the, of the trailer visit, I threw all of my homework material out the window. And it was a windy night. It uh, started blowing. And I put my dad in a very tough position because the prison rules prohibited him from leaving the home after dark. There's a small yard, grassy area that we could walk around in during the day. Um, he didn't want to send me home without my uh, completed homework assignment. Uh, he didn't want to risk getting his first ever discipline violation by violating prison rules. So in that moment, as a 12-year-old, I exercised a kind of perverse power over my father and put him in a really impossible position. And what did he do? I'll just say he did the right thing. You can read the article if you want more details. Okay. <laughs> this is, we talked about your father. You also visited your mother, Kathy Boudin. Of course, she was in a different prison, Bedford Hills, which is New York State's only maximum security prison for women. How did those visits work? I was able to do the trailer visits, the overnight visits with my mom only much later when I was uh, 16 or 17. For the first uh, 15 years or so of her incarceration, she did not have access to overnight visits. But Bedford Hills was one of the most child-centered and uh, parenting-friendly prisons in the country. And I want to be clear, no prison is set up for parenting. In fact, when we send people to prison, we usually ignore or minimize their other identities, particularly their identity as a mother or as a father. And it all gets subsumed within their identity as an inmate or a prisoner, uh, a number, uh, a you know, Department of Corrections identification number. 
But Bedford Hills, more than most prisons, understands that the women incarcerated there are mothers and that they have to continue to be mothers, even from the distance that their incarceration inevitably creates. There's a big portion of the visiting room that is dedicated to what's called the Children's Center. It's carpeted. There are stuffed animals. There are children's books. There are even arts and crafts projects and board games. Um, there's an outdoor patio that would be opened up for uh, activities in the summer with a volleyball net and a hose for water fights. Those summer days on the outdoor patio at the Bedford Hills Prison Visiting Room were, again, the kind of rich human interaction that allowed me to build a relationship with my mom, even though she wasn't there to tuck me in at night or to cook dinner for me or to show up at any of my school graduations. Most prisoners, you have said, have nothing like these uh, trailer visits. What's it like in most places for kids to visit their incarcerated fathers or, or mothers? I did a research project a few years ago where we compared prison visiting policies in all 50 states. And the research was published in the Yale Law and Policy Journal. One of the things we found was tremendous variation in conditions of visiting. We also found policies that were, at least seemed to be facially unconstitutional. For example, um, when we did the research, Utah had a policy statewide prohibiting any language other than English from being spoken on prison visits without regard to whether the incarcerated person or their family even speak English. Uh, we saw one state, uh, New Hampshire, that at the time we did the research prohibited toys from being brought into the visiting room. Um, so really, for the most part, what we saw was policies that were uh, at, at best disinterested in children, in children's rights, or in any kind of maintenance of family bonds. And in some instances, we saw policies like the ones I've described that really went out of their way to inhibit and prohibit any meaningful relationship between children and their incarcerated parents. And mostly what we see about this is on TV, where we see the kids and their parent have to sit at a table in a big room and they're required to stay there. Is that right? That's right. And that was my experience, frankly, John, when I when I went to visit my father on regular day visits. Um, we talked earlier about the overnight visits, which were a godsend for us. But I've also done many, many hundreds of day visits with him over the years. And on every one of those visits, we're assigned a seat. We sit across the table and we're only allowed to move um, to go to the vending machine or the bathroom. And it's a pretty challenging thing. Imagine a three-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, whatever age, having a kid be required to sit for hours and have a conversation with someone with whom they have a very emotionally fraught relationship. Yeah. I felt, as many children do uh, when I was younger, a sense of anger, a sense of abandonment, stigma, uh, and even at times a, a sense of guilt, feeling that perhaps if I'd been more lovable mm -hmm. as a one-year-old, my parents mm -hmm. wouldn't have risked losing me to participate in that crime. Those are the kinds of things that often require therapy and restorative justice practices within the family to work through. Very challenging, if not impossible, to make sense of those emotions as a child when sitting across uh, a wide table from someone who is supposed to be your primary caregiver. And what did your father tell you as a little boy about why he was in prison? One of the things that was so important to me uh, and that allowed me to rebuild trust and love with my father 
was his willingness to take responsibility and to be honest with me, no matter how old I was, no matter how much I was capable of understanding, he was always really clear that he had participated in a violent crime and that people had died as a result. And we talked about the three men and their families who um, would never be whole again as a result of this crime. We talked about what my dad did and why he did it and how he faced consequences because of the devastating impact that crime had on those three families and their entire community. His honesty, his remorse, and his willingness to uh, be candid with me about the mistakes he'd made were a critical part of my ability to forgive him and move forward in a relationship based in trust and love. So you got to do visits. There were also phone calls and there were letters, but, but not all prisoners, it turns out, can write letters. That's right. Well, obviously, educational levels amongst people who are incarcerated lag far behind the general public. And basic literacy is a challenge for many incarcerated parents and their families. Um, but even beyond that, the cost of postage and simply sending uh, a letter costs about two hours worth of prison wages in my dad's prison. So if you don't have a family member who can put money on your account to help you buy stamps, um, your average prison inmate in this country may very well not be able to afford to buy stamps, uh, paper, uh, and, and other materials for sending letters. Um, I was lucky that our family was able to, to afford stamps and postage, and we had a really robust back and forth over letters and phone calls. And the phone calls also are massively expensive. As a child, they would cost more than $3 just for the first minute, long distance yes. collect phone calls. And um, we'd often end up spending uh, a couple hundred dollars a month in, in phone calls from prisons. And if we hadn't had support from my extended family, I wouldn't have been able to accept all of those calls. And I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing, uh, nothing better when, when you're a kid feeling alone or isolated than getting a call from mommy or daddy. Um, and to have to worry about the cost and whether you're, uh, you have enough credit on your account to be able to hit one to accept the call is a really stressful thing for a young child to have to go through. One thing a lot of people don't understand, how come your father was sentenced to 75 years and your mother was released after only 22 years? I thought they both did pretty much the same thing in that bungled Brinks robbery. Well, John, they did almost exactly the same thing. You're, you're, you're spot on. Um, I will say that 22 years doesn't feel like only to me. It feels like a, a lifetime. But yeah. you're absolutely right. My father has now spent nearly double the amount of time in prison that my mother did for the same crime. And, and this is just one of countless examples of arbitrary outcomes in America's criminal justice system. My mother did not end up going to trial. Uh, at the last minute, her case resolved the way that 98% of criminal cases do. And the judge gave her a 20 year to life sentence. My father's case, by contrast, did go to trial. And at the outcome of the trial, he was given the maximum possible sentence, which was 25 years to life for each of the three men who was killed. And the judge decided to make that a consecutive rather than a concurrent sentence, meaning 75 years minimum. Um, as it currently stands, my father won't be eligible for parole until the year 2056. <sighs> and um, he's already 76 years old. So that would mean he'd have to live to 112 years old just to be eligible for his first parole date. 
How much of that difference was because of the uh, the defense attorneys that each of them had? How much about, of it was the judge? They had the the, the same judge, um, as I understand it, but they did have different defense attorneys. My mother had lawyers who zealously advocated for her, experienced criminal defense attorneys. My father didn't have a lawyer at all. And that was his choice. He chose to represent himself. But as uh, someone who spent uh, my entire professional career as either a criminal defense attorney or now as the elected district attorney for San Francisco, I can tell you, it is almost always a very bad idea to represent yourself, even if you're a lawyer, even if you're an expert in criminal law. My father was not a lawyer. He was not an expert in criminal law. And his decision to represent himself not only guaranteed a conviction, but it also almost certainly uh, frustrated and angered the judge and resulted in a uh, much harsher sentence. Wrapping up here, let's talk about the big picture of the issues that affect so so many other uh, people here that should be changed. First thing is the law of felony murder. This is a tell us tell us about felony murder and what progressive prosecutors are thinking about felony murder as a charge. Felony murder is the is the charge, the primary charge that my parents were convicted of, and it's a really out of date and and rarely used legal doctrine outside of the United States. And, and even in some states in the U.S., it's been abolished or substantially uh, limited in the past few years because of a recognition of how disconnected it is from the way we do things in other areas of criminal law. Basically, here's how felony murder works. If you are knowingly involved in committing a violent felony and someone dies, the prosecution can charge you with murder. That's the equivalent of first degree murder, regardless of what your role was in the crime. In other words, you might not have even been present you might not have been armed. You might have had no intent for anyone to get killed. And the argument in favor of this is it's supposed to be a powerful disincentive for people to participate in the kind of violent crimes that sometimes lead to death. And, and fair enough, we should absolutely disincentivize people and deter people from participating in those crimes. But the fundamental problem is it treats the person who plans, organizes, and carries out a crime using a gun to take another human life. The same as someone who's sitting outside in the car uh, keeping watch, who may not even know that the principal is armed. It, it conflates different roles, drastically different roles in the commission of crimes and allows all of them to be treated equally. It's the only place really in criminal law where we don't care about the person we're prosecuting's specific intent, where we don't care about what they wanted compared to what someone else wanted. And as a result, we end up sending people to prison for life, even when they didn't personally use a weapon or cause any physical harm. There's very few, if any other countries in the world that use this legal doctrine. It was abolished uh, in most of the other Commonwealth countries. And many states, including California, have um, implemented legislative or uh, judicially driven reforms to limit prosecutors' ability to use this doctrine to send minor participants in a crime to prison for life. Another thing we'd like to see changed is the distance that many prisoners are sent from their homes and their families. It's a critical issue. Uh, visiting is such an important part of children's 
experience growing up, coming to terms with their identity, with understanding why it is that they're being raised by foster parents or by a single mother or by grandparents, in my case, by uh, essentially adoptive parents who took me into their family. And yet prisons are built for the most part, really, really far away. You mentioned Los Angeles. Once someone's been convicted, they could be sent to the other side of the state, a, a 10 or 15 hour drive away from where they live. In state correctional facilities, uh, on average, 62% of parents are located in a prison that is more than 100 miles away from their place of residence at the time of their arrest. And so you think about what that does to the cost and the barriers to visitation. It's a huge problem. And it's something that there's been a push, not just in the United States, but around the world to prioritize housing people who are incarcerated in places that are accessible to their families and their communities. And the reason for that is not so much about the rights of the person who's incarcerated. It's about the rights of the children and the families left behind. And it's about a recognition that we are all safer when people who are incarcerated maintain contact with their families and communities. We need them to succeed when they get released. We need them to reintegrate into their communities safely, to be able to get jobs, to be able to remain arrest-free. And cutting them off entirely, we know we have really good data on this from states like Minnesota and Ohio and beyond that show maintaining contact with family can be a really powerful tool to help succeed when people are ultimately released and reintegrated into their communities. And one other thing, we need to do something about the prison phone ripoff. Absolutely. Well, I know there's been a lot of groups, including the Center for um, Constitutional Rights in New York uh, and others that have been really involved in litigating this issue, bringing down the cost of prison phone calls. And at least in New York State, um, over the now nearly 40 years I've been getting calls from my father, the costs have come way down. But many states still um, charge exorbitant amounts. Um, there's sweetheart deals with phone companies, uh, millions of dollars being made by for-profit companies on the backs of our poorest black and brown families. Just one personal question. Your father, David Gilbert, you said is now 76 years old. He's been in prison during the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really scary. How's he doing right now? Is he healthy? He is healthy. It's been a very stressful year for all of us, John. Thanks for asking about him. I haven't been able to visit him now in nearly 15 months. It's the longest I can ever remember go, going without seeing him. And it's been an unusually stressful time to go without a visit. Um, his prison's not allowing visits at all right now, which frankly is probably a good thing in the context of this deadly pandemic. And we've seen how it tears through incarcerated populations, how um, prisons and jails create the perfect conditions for spreading a contagious virus like this one. And uh, people in prisons don't generally have access to good healthcare or social distancing or even basic hygiene. So I've been very anxious this whole year about my father. And thankfully, um, he is healthy. He's managed to be very, very careful and basically limit himself as much as possible to his cell. Only leave when necessary and, and take extreme uh, precautions when he does leave his cell. But he, others in his prison have not been so lucky. At least one person died. Over 100 contracted the virus um, in his prison alone. And so it's something that we continue to think about and worry about, uh, and we're all hoping uh, for the best every day. 
Chesa Boudin, he's the district attorney of San Francisco and the son of David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin. He wrote the lead piece in the new special issue of The Nation on parents and parenting. You can read it at thenation.com. Chesa, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you. Haiti is back in the news, and so we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's written a lot about Haiti, especially her award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She also writes about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, which she covers for this podcast. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker magazine. She's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine, Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, Haiti has always been important to the left around the world because Haiti had the first slave revolution in modern history and the only successful slave revolution in modern history. That's what we say about Haiti. What does Donald Trump say about Haiti? He's given it one of what I consider his prizes. He calls it a shithole country. And there's one more thing we have to review about the history of Haiti, the indemnity. Haiti was a colony of France's, and it was really, I mean, if you look at it through a modern lens, it was like a modern extermination camp with a work camp part to that, so that there were slaves on the plantations, uh, but it was not considered to be by the French generational, so they just got new shiploads of slaves when the old slaves died. It wasn't cultivated, you know, friendly slave ownership. It was the worst kind of brutality. And the slaves rose up. In 1791, the uprising began, and they won their war against Napoleon's army with a little help from yellow fever, but they won a a major war under the guidance of Toussaint Louverture. And let me just add, in the name of the French Revolution. In the name of the French Revolution and for a few moments here and there with the backing of the French Revolution. Uh, But then Napoleon came to power and decided he shouldn't lose this most valuable of the colonies, but he did. So then, um, given the world situation at the time and the global economy, which much of which was uh, based on slavery, The world was freaked out. France was freaked out, which had other uh, slave colonies in the Caribbean. And the French who lost demanded from the Haitians an indemnity or reparations uh, for the war. It was a very weird situation because usually the victor demands payment from the loser. But here the loser was demanding payment from the victor. And One of the many things the French were demanding this indemnity for was not only the lands and the plantations that were taken over by their former enslaved persons, but the enslaved persons themselves. So essentially, the French were asking the Haitians to pay what today is billions of dollars in reparations for having stolen themselves, their bodily selves, from the French. It's one of the great ironies of history. And um, the the Haitians paid it back. (laughs) How long did it take the Haitians to pay the indemnity? I think it took till 1948. So that's why we care about Haiti. 
which takes us to last Sunday when people in Port-au-Prince filled the streets, you write at thenation.com. What do you mean by filled? I hate to use the word literally because it's used so poorly most of the time and just means very, but they literally <laughs> filled the streets. And people think of Haiti as having, a, as of Port-au-Prince, the capital, as having like little winding alleys of poverty. But no, it has broad boulevards created by the French and then the American occupation. And they came out en masse, filled the streets for, I think, two and a half miles, the parade went of totally blocked streets filled with people. It was a, a demonstration unlike any I've seen in Haiti since the demonstrations that led in part to the ouster of the Duvalier dynasty in 1986. The president of Haiti is Jovenel Moise. Tell us about him. He is a former uh, banana trader, which which sounds so uh, dismissive, but, you know, he had a banana farm in the north and he was involved in import-export. He was tapped by Michel Martelly, his predecessor, to run for president after Martelly in a kind of relay of the presidency because the Constitution will not permit two consecutive terms in office out of fear of the development of a cult of personality around the president like Papa Doc Duvalier had. So what is really going on right now with these demonstrations? What's really going on is a battle over who runs Haiti and, um, and a protest against Moise's tactics. Moise, with Martelli always in the background, has effectively closed down the legislature, the legislative body of Haiti, by just not calling for elections for the legislature. So slowly, there there are 11 legislators left in Haiti. That's like if a, there were only 11 congressmen and senators left in the United States. It's pathetic, and they can't vote, and they can't meet. And he's been ruling by decree since January of last year. So Moise has effectively been the dictator. Beyond that, he's presiding over the destruction of Haitian society. The streets are overrun with uh, gangs that uh, rob people at will, commit massacres, and continue to kidnap. Right in the middle of this huge demonstration, a beloved pediatrician was kidnapped and then killed because he resisted, and his wife was taken away. And while this whole demonstration was happening on a street where it wasn't happening, that happened. So uh, he's presiding over chaos, and then he realized that his his behaviors had made his regime shaky. And so, like a cornered animal, he turned on his rivals and accused them of organizing a coup d'etat against him. And he arrested 23 members of the rather upright, quite decent opposition, uh, accusing them of leading a coup. They can't lead a coup unless they have a force of violence behind them. He controls all the forces of violence. So they were not leading any coup. And he threw them all in prison, which in Haiti is not a pretty thing. And he shut down the Supreme Court and he arrested three judges in the, on the Supreme Court, one of whom is supposed to be the interim president after he leaves. So he's effectively he shut down the judiciary, he shut down the, uh, the legislative branch of the government and the executive rules alone. We can think of someone else who would have liked to have done that and still would like to do that, except he's living in Florida instead of Washington. So behind all this is the, the aftermath of the earthquake of 2010, 
That was more than a decade ago now, but post-earthquake politics are still at the center of what you call at thenation.com the depraved dance of international aid. Tell us about the depraved dance. So one reason we say that it's still the result of the earthquake, still an aftershock of the earthquake, is that Martelli was the president elected in the wake of the earthquake in 2011. And uh, the depraved dance I'm talking about is Haitian corruption, which is also always seen as like the corruption of Haitian people and they can't govern themselves. And if you give them money, they just distribute it among themselves. But this is this has been true of certain uh, regimes in Haiti, of course, and it's you can't be corrupt with money unless there's money to be corrupt with. And the money that was coming in after the earthquake was coming in from the international community. But so as I see it, what was happening was the international community was doing business, as they always do, with Haitians whom they know. And those are Haitians in business, who speak English, who are familiar to the international community. So they keep dealing with these people. And these people, many of them, are very corrupt. And they push that money toward their friends and they push that money toward their projects. But the people on whose backs the money is funded, in other words, the people whose misery is the excuse for all these funds post-earthquake and before, are the people exactly who are not getting the money or not benefiting from the money. When Martelli was elected, it was a very suspect, controversial election with very low turnout. He seemed to have lost the first round. Then the OAS inspected it and said, no, he can still be in the second round of voting. And then when the second round of voting came around, the OAS inspected the election again and said, oh, he won the election. And then he was president. And then when Moise was elected, same, same. So there's a feeling among the Haitians that the international community is against them as a people. They can't believe the international community is still supporting this guy in whose government there were people who gave guns to gangs for a massacre in a market, a real massacre, men, women, and children. I think more than 70 people were killed. And this was documented, and still the U.S. supports him. Okay, this was not so surprising under Trump, but Biden has not seemed to have any more courage than Trump on this. And, you know, I think the closer the human rights violators get to Miami, (laughs) the less likely an American president is going to complain about them because he doesn't know what will come next. That's Biden's problem. Where are the Haitians who are more responsible, more politically astute, more law-abiding than Moise? If you're looking for people who have kind of savvy and, you know, can be interlocutors with the international community, my guess is they're all hanging out the window, like waving, saying, we're ready. They are ready. 23 of them are in prison. That's one place they are where Moe's put them recently, the coup, the supposed coup. Um, but there are many more people, and and the U.S. Embassy knows who they are, and the United States government knows who they are. The problem is always, it's, it's always a risk. You want the Americans and the international community to intercede at this moment because if they don't, Moe's will stay because the, he doesn't care about what the Haitian people think. It was an entirely peaceful, gigantic demonstration. And I don't know that entirely peaceful can move Jovenel Moise. But uh, violence, I don't think, will work either because then the international community has an excuse to stick with Moise. And Moise very sagely did not attack this particular demonstration. 
whether under advisement from the U.S. Embassy or not, I don't know. But people are waiting in the wings to help out. And they don't have to be president. They can be part of a commission, an electoral governing commission to just schedule the next elections for president. There is a very reasonable argument that his term has already come to an end and he should be out. The U.S. could opt against him. Instead, it has, for the moment, stuck with him. Amy Willens wrote about the protests in Haiti for thenation.com. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks a lot, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Music